This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last month? Who writes this thing? Oh. Oh, I do. All right, well, that explains a lot. We've got a special episode for listeners today. Taped back in October, today's Lock and Code was actually featured as part of the Cybersecurity Awareness Month training held here at Malwarebytes. This episode is a little lengthy, so that means no funny headlines this time, a la SNL's Weekend Update. But that shouldn't be a problem. I mean, it's not like anything big happened last week. Our main story today concerns the future of connected devices. If that topic sounds familiar to you, it likely means you're paying close attention to Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Cybersecurity Awareness Month is routine by now, and that's good. Every year in October, companies around the world take this time to prep their employees on cybersecurity risks and best practices. Malwarebytes is no different. Not only do we protect users from cyber threats, but obviously we protect our employees too. Today, we're offering Lock and Code listeners something a little different. We're giving you a brief backstage pass as to how we educate, inform, and train employees during Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So this episode is not just a conversation, but a presentation. Today, we're talking to fellow Malwarebytes employees about the future of connected devices. Or to put it more plainly, the future of cybersecurity for the Internet of Things. Ten years ago, this presentation would not have existed. There were no smart watches, no smart speakers, no fitness trackers, no thermostats that learn your routine, and no refrigerators connected to the Internet. But as the volume of Internet of Things, or IoT, devices has increased dramatically in the past few years, there has not been an equal increase in cybersecurity measures for those devices. Already, IoT devices have played a crucial role in earlier cyber attacks, including the 2016 Mirai botnet attack, in which threat actors amassed a database of default usernames and passwords for popular IoT devices and unleashed a massive attack, trying to access devices with non-updated login credentials. And guess what? It worked. To help us better understand what the future has in store for IoT cybersecurity, and the cybersecurity of all connected devices. We're talking to John Donovan, Chief Information Security Officer at Malwarebytes, and Adam Kajawa, Security Evangelist and a Director for Malwarebytes Labs. After today's main presentation, we will also open up the conversation for a Q&A with our colleagues. Without any more delays, John, Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, David, really glad to be here doing Cybersecurity Awareness Month. For those on our local feed, you've seen we have a little bit of a Zoom background for Cybersecurity Awareness Month. In honor of the fact that it's also Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I've got that background up here today, but definitely representing with the Malware Bytes uh, logo. So back to you, David, and let's get into it. Of course. So before we look into the future, I wanted to understand our current situation, right? We know that there are attacks against IoT devices. You know, we know these happen. So what methods are there for us to stay cybersecure with our connected devices today? To begin with, right now, I guess the best security that we have for IoT devices is that it isn't standardized yet. Lots of different devices are using 
different platforms, different frameworks, different protocols in some cases. And that confusion makes it difficult to do things like develop like a serious solution or a, sol- a serious security threat to these devices because, like I said, they're, they're non-standardized. When you mentioned Mirai, yeah, that, that was a huge problem. But this, this bot, all it did was just scan the internet looking for vulnerable ports, or not even vulnerable ports, just IoT devices that are broadcasting online. And then they, they use default credentials, just a list of default credentials to try to get in. It's very simple, very stupid. Didn't require a lot of effort to, to pull off. But if you wanted to see an actual you know, IoT device kind of cyber apocalypse, then we're going to need something that's going to do more than you know, just try to use default passwords. So right now, that's kind of working for us. It also works against us in the sense that developing security tools in order to protect these devices is just as difficult because you can't create one solution that'll necessarily work on every single device. You may have to step outside of the device and put your IoT defenses on the network itself and not actually inside of the IoT device, which is kind of a mixed bag on the results of that. But overall, yeah, I think it's, I think we haven't yet even seen how sophisticated this can get. And it's going to get more sophisticated. We're going to see eventually a standardization of the platforms used for IoT devices. Maybe the government will come down, you know, and say, here's a law. You know, we have to, every single IoT device being sold in, in our country needs to meet certain standards, you know, then we got the same thing for operating systems for hardware, things like that now with desktops and laptops and things like that. So we seem to get that same place with IoT devices, and then we'll start seeing more attacks being developed for them. So that's kind of where we are right now. What we see isn't necessarily any huge attacks like Mirai anymore. We see these piecemeal attacks. We see there's a vulnerability for a certain type of router or a certain type of device, and then attackers will focus on hunting down opportunities to go after the networks attached to those devices or those routers or or whatever and try to infiltrate them and, and do whatever they can. But they understand that there's a, there's a time limit here. Their attacks won't work forever. In fact, they probably won't work for very long. And so they got to move quick and just, you know, take the opportunity. But, but I don't see IoT as a serious endeavor by cyber criminals just yet. It's a real, real interesting kind of place to be because coming from the practitioner role, the CISO role, and when I talk with my peers, you know, IoT is both kind of interesting for the home hobbyist, but also kind of scary because they are now in so many different businesses, whether it's a small businesses or large corporations, or, you know, we could do a whole other podcast on the use of kind of industrial IoT. And, you know, these devices that are in factories and other things like that. But if we stay just kind of on the consumer side to start out with, I mean, unfortunately, you got to do all the things that you would do to secure a corporate network. Now you got to do it in your house. You know, really, if you want to have the right hygiene, you either need to have something that's going to help segregate those devices in your house or set up separate VLANs and networks. And, you know, I know with our malware knots, a lot of people are following me with that and with our podcast listeners, but a bunch of people will say, what the heck's a VLAN? And how do I do anything with that, right? The other kind of basic hygiene thing, of course, is that some manufacturers are being very good and responsible and they provide automatic updates, right? And, you know, those automatic updates are on by default. And that's the only way that those things are going to be secure. I'm concerned more about all of these small devices that are built with a microkernel and a different chip that will never be updated because now you have a persistent attack. And whether it's something like Mirai, where it was used to do that distributed denial of service type thing, or if it's an entryway into someone's house, someone's corporation or something else like that, it just kind of adds to the whole kind of threat landscape. 
And so that that's one of the things that I'm kind of most concerned about. It's also, it's, you know, it's both a bold new future, but also the same thing over again. Actually, it reminds me of hospital IoT devices. We were talking about IoT medical devices, or even, even equipment deployed inside of a hospital that requires connection to the internet, you know, like radiology equipment or, or something. Some of these organizations that develop these tools don't exist anymore. You know, and, and I've heard about this plenty of times in plenty of hospitals where they've got this equipment that's running like on Windows XP and the company that built it doesn't exist anymore. They have never released updates for it. And it just, it puts the organization in a, in a really tough spot because now like, hey, we need this equipment to do our stuff. You know, it's it's cutting edge, you know, top of the line, but there's no security for it. And that's that's one of the areas where hospitals are, are so vulnerable because you've got a lot of this equipment, you know, IoT medical equipment running there that could be used as avenues for entry, you know, in addition to other security concerns when it comes to hospitals like, you know, public Wi-Fi networks and uh, war driving, things like that. So, yeah, that's that that's exactly what I was thinking of when you when you mentioned them being able to pull push out, you know, security updates and whatnot. And if we're relying on the vendor themselves to release these updates and, and to push them out, especially since most IoT developers and, and vendors are small businesses, you know, they're not, we're not seeing a lot of, I mean, obviously there are IoT devices being built by bigger companies and you can expect those to be a little more maintained, but, but especially the, the, the smaller stuff and specialized stuff, it's very unlikely you'll get security updates for that. So this is basically just a, a vulnerability machine you plug into your network. You were talking about that right there. Adam, with many of these devices are are built by smaller, medium-sized businesses, right? We can name the large players. We we some of us likely have those devices in our homes, but I wanted to go back to again revisiting that that a lot of these are built by small companies, and some of those companies just don't even exist after several years. And so I wanted to get a better understanding of how do these things get built? You know, if if they're being built by small companies, you know, are small companies building it from the ground up? Are they writing the code themselves or uh, are they borrowing code? And then also the parts themselves, you know, are are they building hardware? I doubt it. Are they buying cheap hardware and putting it into their own devices in a way that, again, just makes it a sort of mini computer? A ton of questions here, right? But what I'm all wrapping up with is how are these things built? So let me me tackle this one first. Uh, Kind of before coming to Malwarebytes, one of the things I was doing was uh, what's often called the a virtual or VCSO gig. I was doing consulting with a number of different companies, including a semiconductor company here based in the Valley. And you know they were looking to put out chips, right? And so their profit model looks like, I sell a bunch of chips, stuff that's gonna get designed in, and it's gonna be in the manufacturing pipeline potentially for years or decades, right? And so, you know, this was uh, one of the responsible companies. They were trying to do stuff even at the design phase. So before they were even getting down to a number of things around that. So, you know, you really have to look at what is that root of trust in the hardware? And then what are all the other layers that you're building on top of it in software? And so what's really interesting is a lot of people don't realize that they think, hey, this is just a device. Well, in that device is a chip and in that is some firmware. And in that is even in a lot of cases, a whole kind of computer on a chip. So David, when you were mentioning before, these are becoming computers, they absolutely are. And one is running, you know, this Linux kernel, this other one's running XYZ. So what Adam was talking about before, a lot of the medical devices were built on versions of Windows. And a lot of kind of even some of the commerce, you know, uh, cash machines and other things like that are built on Windows. And so if you think of all the problems we've had with kind of those consumer operating systems, just imagine that amplified in these other environments. Adam, did you have anything you wanted to add? 
No, no. <laughs> he got it down. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So I guess the last the, last what? thing I just say about that one, David, is you know you mentioned small uh, manufacturers and things like that. You know, it's really interesting because yeah, what if you have that device that you had one primary developer on? So could they even maintain that code? So it's it's you know it's a real challenge. Kind of it's the same challenge we have in a bunch of different areas, but you know people expect that their smart light bulb is something you can just plug in like a light bulb, right? Yeah. It's not something that you have to patch or that you have to install anti-malware on or, you know, something else like that. Right. And partly why I'm so curious about this question here is because it also leads into something else where I'm trying to understand because there's a lack of, you know, standardization, does that also prevent a day in which far off future we can say, oh, these IoT devices they all can have malware bytes installed on them. They can all have any antivirus installed on them, right? We we already have to grapple with things where we have different products for different operating systems. And now, like you're saying, it's not just different operating systems. Some of these operating systems are out of date. You know, medical devices built on a version of Windows, which is no longer supported. What do you do? And again, going back there is, is there ever a world in which, again, malware bytes can run on IoT? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're headed in that direction right now. Every every new IoT device being developed, every time you see someone using their phone or their smartwatch or whatever, we're seeing the future. We're seeing the the evolution of of mankind's technology away from our desktop PCs and our laptops and more toward our devices, our home our home devices, our IoT devices, these things that are, you know, making it a little less like we're, you know, living in a in a digital world in front of our screens and more like everywhere we go, we can connect to the internet, we connect, you know, with information and, and smart devices and things like that. And as that happens, and these things do become more specialized, then we're going to probably end up with maybe, I don't know, like three or four different primary kind of device developers and operating systems. And, and when we get to that point, and more folks are using them for things like banking or social media or whatever they have to do, then that's when we see the investment by the cyber criminals. And when we see investment by the cyber criminals, that means that all of the security vendors, if they haven't already been migrating to those platforms, they need to do that because that's that's where the focus is going to be on the bad guys. That's where the focus has to be by us as well. And I think we'll get there. We'll get there sooner than later, for sure. We're already, as far as Malwarebytes goes, and we got iOS, we've got Android, we got Windows and, and Mac. So We've been expanding. A lot of other vendors have ex- been expanding. You just got to go where the threats are. And so that's why I think that, yeah, we're definitely going to be seeing that happen. That's a real interesting area because certainly for companies like Malwarebytes, we've focused on both our consumer and corporate customers, right? And so you're running Windows, you're running a Mac, maybe you have a Chromebook, you know, you've got your iOS or Android phone. And that's not what a lot of this stuff is based on. You know, a lot of the IoT stuff is based on ARM processors, which are actually like in your iOS and, and other mobile phones, but in a very specialized way. There's an alternative called RISC-V. You know, that one semiconductor manufacturer I mentioned, basically they like this because it's a license-free, you know, open consortium. So that reduces your cost. And if you're putting out an IoT device that needs to be sold at a 10, 20, even $200 price point, it's a lot different than you know turning out something that's going to be a thousand dollar iPhone, right? So you know it's interesting in that how do you kind of make sure that you have stuff built in? It's a big challenge, and I think that we have an opportunity, and so do other folks around there, 
to get security built in. And that's really what needs to happen. You have to build it in from the beginning of your process. That's a really good point. We have the wherewithal at the moment to realize this has to be done. Maybe during the early developments of a lot of the technologies that use today, there wasn't somebody saying, how could we bake security into this? And here's our opportunity to say, you know, here we can do it, where you don't even have to run devices, you know, third-party applications on a device. It should be built in. There should be modular and easy to do. I would love to see, you know, Malwarebytes, you know, some version of that built into the reference for risk V or something else like that. Maybe I'm giving an idea to our chief product officer. We haven't discussed this already, but you know, I mean, there's such a need and an opportunity there. The question of course all comes down to, is there a business model? Because part of our big issue with all this is people are driving for minimal, minimal cost. You know, what do I need to do to make that smart speaker work? What do I need to do to have a nice light bulb that I can change the hue on, you know, in conjunction with my TV or, you know, whatever it is that, they're selling to in kind of these IoT kind of marketplaces. You talked about having security built in, and I wanted to ask, whose responsibility is it to build that security in? And then how do we also convince those folks, those stakeholders, that it is their responsibility? Do you want to hear the, the flip answer that everyone will say? And then I'll turn it over to Adam for a real answer. <laughs> so whose responsibility is it? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> No, but but more seriously, you know, Adam, talk about kind of the supply chain and where do you see, you know, people either stepping up or not stepping up? I think that in most cases, everyone's going to try to cover their butts if there's something that they didn't expect or whatever. I think that if we were able to get some legislation down that set up the onus of responsibility on who should be creating these tools or or some sort of government body or or neutral party that can help bring together folks, organizations, both the developers of IoT devices and security developers to kind of create this baseline of what security needs to be baked into all IoT devices. Until that happens, then we are relying on corporate or capitalistic means to suss out the most popular, I guess, IoT device or IoT security model. And if, as what John said, you know, folks are looking for more and more a cheaper solutions, you know, streamline things like that. We that may leave us not with the best security solution built into IoT devices, but rather just the one that's most inexpensive to develop, which you know could be good or bad. I mean, look at our own use of the IP, the Internet Protocol, you know, TCP model for just how the internet works overall. Originally, when there was when they were developing the TCP/IP model, when they were determining, okay, how is the internet going to work, they had TCP/IP. I think it was it was like Novel or something, or Novell. And they had a protocol that was better. It was actually overall better. We'd have a better internet right now if folks went with that one. But it wasn't done yet. And it was probably more expensive to finish. So they went with TCP IP. And that's why we got, you know, kind of this iffy internet that always looks like it's on the verge of collapsing. And so the same thing could be said about IoT devices in the future if we kind of have the same viewpoint of it. If, if it's about the money, if it's about the savings, about what's ready now, then we're going to end up with a subpar security product. And that's going to lead to worse attacks in the future, ones that are going to be more difficult to modify things for that could result in greater exploits, greater overall damage in the long run. We've talked about some of, right, again, the, the future of connected devices here. And part of that future was kind of forecasting, yeah, maybe we will have a day where antivirus runs on these devices. I wanted to ask, what else does that future look like? And this is an opportunity also to kind of 
better understand how IoT devices are becoming small computers and seeing that the intersection of IoT cybersecurity and the future of cybersecurity might actually be the same conversation, right? It might be the same conversations we have with, will passwords disappear? Will biometrics be the standard? And so broadening it out there, you know, what do you think kind of pie in the sky ideas here, the future of IoT cybersecurity looks like? Let me see, I can start going down one path and not trying to put in necessarily a plug for Apple, but if you look at kind of the Apple ecosystems and the Android ecosystems and kind of differences that are there. So the Apple ecosystem has the whole idea of the walled garden. So absolutely, we have an app that you can run on your iPhone, but there's less that you can do on that platform kind of if you're not baked into the, the core of it. In the Android space, there's a lot more that we can do and a lot more that other folks can do, but also a lot more that the bad guys can do. And so it's so hard to get some core security things done right. The crypto is so important. Biometrics, you mentioned biometrics. Once your biometric, quote unquote, fingerprint is out there, I mean, it's kind of game over. So you need to make sure that things are done in a way where they're secure, built in, that your fingerprint image doesn't actually go out there like we saw in some early Android phones, not going to put any names around there, you know, that they actually use the root of trust and in, in hardware security. So I'm hopeful that that's the direction we're going to for some of these IoT devices. But then the pessimist in me and the realist in me knows that there's just going to be a lot of nasty crap out there. Yeah, yeah, I, I fully agree. I think that much like with, with everything we've seen when it comes to cybersecurity and in the past, you'll start by seeing, we'll probably see some vendors show up. Honestly, I think that we should treat IoT security as the future that we're aiming towards. But the reality is, and just like just like what John said, the pessimistic part is saying, all right, well, this is actually still going to be probably determined based on the market. So we're going to initially see a few individual organizations show up and say, hey, we're, we're specifically defending IoT devices and we're so great. They'll get eaten up by larger organizations who will adopt a technology. Eventually, everybody will copy that guy or that organization. And we'll see you know, lots and lots of, of the same method of protecting IoT across the board. And we'll just have to see how it builds off of that. It may continue to be just this specialized offering for a while because it's been like that with mobile. Back five or six years ago, we were saying, hey, next year, this is this is it. This is when mobile malware comes. This is when we start seeing the mobile malware apocalypse. You know, just the worst stuff out there. It's, it's coming. We've been expecting it. We were predicting it. And it never came. You know, we've seen a few malware families that have been impressive over the years here and there, but never, never what we thought we'd see, like we see on the on the PC side. And so that's probably going to happen still with IoT devices. And still today, because of that period when we, we all expected to see so much threat and then it never came, you know, that may have also just kind of dissuaded some people and might have, it might have turned them off to the concept that mobile malware is a problem or a priority. And then when you get to budget meetings, when you get to planning meetings and, and determining, you know, what's the next area we need to protect or we need to focus on, somebody always says, hey, mobile malware. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, it, crying wolf at this point. And so the same thing with IoT devices and IoT malware. We're going to keep seeing people developing tools to secure these things, but we're probably not going to see the real badness for some time yet. And the same, we still haven't seen the real badness when it comes to mobile malware yet. So we got a long way to go. The paranoid and pessimist in me says that totally agree with Adam. You know, we haven't seen 
things like Mirai, which were huge out there and kind of, but that's kind of more of the people trying to make a splash or trying to show that they can weaponize things. I am always more concerned about kind of the targeted attacks from the fishing arena. It's this, the spear fishing or the quote unquote whaling. I'm looking for someone who I'm specifically targeting. And now this just adds a whole new frontier for that. And, you know, it's, it's the zero day in the iPhone that some cyber criminal will pay a million dollars for, and, you know, maybe Apple can pay a large hundred thousand dollar bug bounty on that, but you're not going to find an IOT a manufacturer that's going to be able to pay those independent researchers. And, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing around this, whether or not they have a good internal program. Like, you know, we run our own internal program. We've got a bug bounty with external researchers. We have a whole research arm, you know, Adam's one of our guys over there. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of trying to stay optimistic instead of falling to that whole pessimism phase. I think we can make great strides, but I think it all comes down to your risk level. Right. So if you are being targeted by a government agency, right, they're going to figure out how to get you. And it might be that they just kidnap you. So it's down to kind of your risk level and preferences that are there. So what is enough to provide that level of security for the risk to general consumers? I think that's a, you know important way to kind of look at that. This question might be too large. And it's going back to, Adam, this idea that you had, and John as well, about, about market-driven cybersecurity. And I'm wondering if there is a way to avoid a cybersecurity path that relies so predominantly on on what the market asks for or what budget can allow. Because that path seems to say that we only learn our lesson once it's too late. And I wanted to know if, if I'm interpreting that correctly, right? We only really devote dollars to things once we've already lost a huge amount of money. And I'm wondering, yeah, is, is there a way even to subvert that? Is that possible? I think a good thought exercise that I like to, to do is to compare what we do as far as developing tools and, and means to fight against cyber criminals, similar to how a single police department might protect their area. We don't expect the cops in a single town or anywhere, really, to set aside their time and effort and resources to develop new forms of law enforcement. They have to go out to third parties. They have to go out and, and, and you know, schools or private companies or whatever. There's these folks who have the time and the resources and their devotion and their job is to develop new forms of things. We don't really have that in the cybercrime world. We've got vulnerability researchers. We've got people who develop offensive tools just to see if they can, and they release that out in the open. We have college people or people in colleges, but honestly, they don't really result in a lot of valuable information being developed. Most of the relevant threat information we see comes from private companies these days. So you basically, you've got the, the private companies that you're assigning to both not only enforce the rules and the laws, but also at the same time, continually develop and create new approaches to, to more modern threats. And you can't really expect them to do a lot to the entire industry. You know what I mean? They'll be able to make significant changes inside their own you know, little bubble. And we've seen some organizations over the years, Microsoft in some cases, you know, other ones, who will create these kind of working groups. You know, when Configure came out, when CryptoLocker came out. There are these working groups that were created between lots of security professionals from across the world and different companies and stuff like that. But if that's the only time we ever come together, 
then we've already lost. The cyber criminals work together more than we do in some cases. And so until we have some kind of governing body or just a, a third party authority that we could all say, yeah, we'll look toward and we'll agree with and we'll play by the rules of until we can do that, then we're all just kind of competing with each other. And that may result in some benefit for us against cyber criminals. But at the same time, that lack of communication, that distrust of each other could leave open vulnerabilities and holes in, in, in someone's security posture or even just how a, a security product protects things that could be exploited by the bad guys. So it's it's a double-edged sword, just like everything in this industry. It's everything's double-edged. Adam, uh, he uh, kind of edged towards this and you know we're heading into election time here as we're recording this and streaming it internally. There has to be the right level of private and public around this. Just like we look at, you know, we talked about smart light bulbs. You know, there's a underwriter's laboratory, a UL testing on that. There's a whole kind of set of things that have been done. There are standards in the medical fields and other things like that. And I think the question is, how do we get that right balance so that people can innovate and you can still have those small creators doing things? At the same time, you don't have something that's going to be dangerous to someone, right? And there's a whole spectrum there, back to what Adam was talking about in the beginning, which is they were just trying to make that MRI machine work and they needed a computer in it. And so part of that whole process meant that you can't update it as often, right? Making sure that we've got the right regulations in place is a big part of that. But there are other components as well, right? I wanted to, before we open it up to the Q&A, wrap up here and kind of rewind the clock back to today. And I wanted to ask, what actionable advice is there, right? We've been talking about IoT the whole time. What actionable advice do we have for our own employees here, for our colleagues about protecting the devices that they likely have inside their homes? So on a basic, 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 basic level, if you get an IoT device, if you have a router or a smart fridge or a Nest or a smart watch or, or a freaking Fitbit or whatever, change the password on it, okay? <laughs> do not leave the default password on any device you have at all. If, it is, if there's any sort of admin password, change that thing right away because that's a really easy way to get it. In addition to that, same as with your laptop or whatever or mobile device, don't connect to any networks you don't trust, especially when it comes to IoT devices. Some of their information being passed along those things is in plain text. It's not even encrypted. And so you wanna, you wanna watch out for that. So just the basic kind of stuff, like I said, changing your passwords, keeping off of untrusted networks, Keeping an eye out for relevant news concerning that device. If, if it's something you use commonly or you have in a, in a spot that could be dangerous, let's say you find out that there's a vulnerability in that device that it could be used to allow someone from outside of your network to get into your network. Well, that's something you should know about, right? So keep an eye out for that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think, I think overall, just those, those kind of basic things, making sure they're updated, making sure the password's changed, will reduce the chances of someone attacking your IoT device significantly. If it's a low-hanging fruit, they may go after it. But if it's not, if it's more secured, then they won't bother with it because there's probably a thousand other devices out there that are less secured and that they can get access to. I mean, I'll, I'll add some things around this, which is it is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. If you haven't already, go through all the cybersecurity training we got for you guys. I mean, we've got stuff that is relevant to the company here, to understanding policies, but it's also really useful for you in your home environments. One of the things that our 
separate host here, Kelsey, who helped set this up with David. She released some training that I think we put out on the internet as well. If we haven't, we'll do that soon about cybersecurity for your kids, you know? And so she did kind of a fun video that, that we have out there. So, you know, share that with your kids. Beyond that, there's some basic hygiene stuff. And I'll start with the corporate side and kind of move to the personal side. But think about what you're doing and what people are asking you to do on the company side, which is make sure you've got that endpoint protection software running, right? We're Malwarebytes. Those are table stakes. And then as an employee of Malwarebytes, you get access to the consumer products for free. Both the premium endpoint product, put that on all of your computers. You've got also the privacy product. Same thing there. And, you know, hey, for our listeners that don't have the advantage of being an employee here of Malwarebytes, or as we often say, Malwarenots, get some protection on there. We would say use Malwarebytes, but, you know, get something going on there. And then just follow good hygiene. When you get into the more advanced scenarios, I mean, we've got some engineers listening here. We definitely have other folks like that. I'm sorry, today, you got to figure out how you segregate your networks. And there are some products out there that are helping with that, kind of on the network side. So it's the same type of stuff you would do in a corporate environment. You need endpoint protection. You need to make sure your networks are working properly. You need to make sure that you change passwords, have good, strong ones, and that you store them and share them securely. So, I mean, unfortunately, I don't see any kind of short-term great answers. I'm hoping we get to a world where we can move kind of beyond passwords and things like that. But, you know, the devil is always in the details with this type of stuff. And I see we've got some questions rolling in here. So that was kind of answering one of the ones that JP put up here, which is just avoiding IoT devices. Hey, that's where I've been for the last 10 years, but I've been deploying them now and I got separate networks. That's the only way it will work. Yeah, John, because we have already addressed here, right? We do have some questions rolling in and I think that's the best segue we can get here. First, John and Adam, thank you for the past 30, 45 minutes. Uh, That was great. That was super informative. Let's open it up to folks and see what's rolling in. So, so someone's asking, is there a way to know if one of my devices has been compromised? That's a good question. And first of all, depending on what the device is, there's probably lots of different ways to check to see whether it has been compromised. Is it acting funny? If you want to get serious about investigating this, you can put up some sort of network monitoring tool like Wireshark on your network to see if any any information's coming off of that device that shouldn't be. If you just notice anything out of the ordinary or or strange, or if anything is happening to your desktops and laptops and other devices on the same network, then you may want to investigate that. I wouldn't just, you know, if nothing is happening, you can probably assume that everything's all right. But if you start to see something going on to your other devices on your network, that's probably a good time to investigate. Of course, one one of the guys on my team, Trini, has to ask the deep one, which I don't have the answer for, but you know, we should definitely go and talk a bit about this. So he's asking, are there vendors providing a platform to manage IoT devices like our Nebula? And you know, there are people that are moving out in that area. I just I don't have any like a strong one that I could recommend today. You know, it may be that we see our podcast listeners come back with some comments or you know, can reply into David with everyone that anyone that they think is interesting there. I mean, there are a number of IoT specific podcasts on the internet and some of them I think work pretty good. It's just not coming to mind for me right now. Most of them are so much focused on, hey, how do I make my smart home really cool? And the security aspects of it are kind of like the backend follow-up. But I think, you know, we're starting to see the different ecosystems from the major players like Apple, Google, you know, Amazon that are trying to insert themselves in that. I just don't see anything that's that mature enough. Certainly nothing that would be kind of on the the order of like our Nebula platform today. 
I actually had a question. If I am a person who has a IoT device that that I know is no longer supported, do I just have to throw that device away? And I ask this as someone who I'm pretty sure my brother still uses a Pebble watch, which I believe got sold and maybe even dismantled a couple of years ago, several years ago. And he is not an IoT. He's not like an IoT dude. He doesn't love this kind of stuff, but he was like, this watch actually, I like this watch. And he loved it. And that happens all the time. Company gets sold and it's no longer supported. So what do I do if I have an IoT device that I just thoroughly enjoy, but I I know there is zero chance that it is getting ever supported? I would recommend just like with any organization that has hardware or software that they can't get rid of because it's proprietary, because there is no update for it or whatever, to just reduce risk as much as possible. So if they are like, I refuse to wear any other type of device that might be more secure to do the same thing, I just want to use this, then this Pebble, then then fine. But just keep in mind the potential security risks of that and try to reduce it. You know, maybe only use that particular watch to connect to the internet or to a network every X amount of time rather than constantly, you know, just upload data or information because that constant connection might be used, might be a vulnerable avenue for attackers. I mean, I think that's a great way to think about this. And it really comes down to the same way that I would talk about any security program with our execs, our board. You have to look at the risk. What is the risk level that you're looking to do? And what's your personal risk level in this case, right? So, hey, if that watch is the thing that's going to, you know, make your day, you may accept a little risk if it's going to get you what you want. And hey, the great thing with uh, crowdsourcing here, our questions and answers is our, our CIO says that uh, Pebble's intellectual property was purchased by Fitbit. So, you know, that friend of yours who has the Pebble might want to at least uh, ask the Fitbit folks if uh, he can get an update or something like that. We have another question coming in that is really smart here. We've talked about, you know, sometimes part of relying on IoT depending on your threat model, means setting up a a separate network. And someone here asking is asking, right, I have most of my IoT devices on my guest network, but one dilemma that I've run into with IoT is that controlling things like smart speakers, right, like Sonos, since their phone needs to be on the same Wi-Fi network as the Sonos device, that means that there's going to be a sort of obstacle there where do I have to switch my phone's network every time I'm on connecting to the Sonos device? You know, part of this is convenience. And if Sonos is on a guest network, does that mean I always have to be on the guest network? That doesn't seem like it's a guest network anymore. Or do I have to switch over whenever I want the convenience of what these what these tools are promising? So yeah, what what does a person do in this kind of situation? John, this is all you. there we go well unfortunately i've never been a sonos user so i can't specifically answer that one first thing i would say is go search out some of those sonos uh, forums and other things like that or whatever your device is what i'm seeing is that some of the home network manufacturers and dm me later i'm not going to tell you what i have installed in my house on a podcast folks sorry that's part of you know basic operational security or opsec but I'm seeing that more of those manufacturers are having devices and having controls that you can put in place in those networks without having to be the security home hobbyist. Like, you know, I, I know plenty of CISOs who, and other, you know, engineers, technical folks who they've gone and built their own firewall boxes and network controls. And they're even 
sending stuff to Splunk or, you know, free Splunk or, you know, other kind of security platforms. That's not something I'm going to tell people they all have to go do. But I would say search out what's there. And, and there have been some interesting developments where, you know, you can potentially use a single network and have devices isolated. But I would still say that the state of the art today is is to do separate networks for your IoT devices. And for, I mean, I'll tell you right now, in my house, my daughter is doing college from home and she's on a separate network from me and my wife's on a separate network too. And that's the way that I have it set up, but I'm a little extra paranoid. I don't have it set up like that. <laughs> I just got a really beefy router. <laughs> I believe that is all the questions we have for today. And that's great because we are nearing our ending time here. So John and Adam, I just wanted to thank you again for being on today's live show. Thanks so much, David. It's been great. Yeah, definitely. It's been a pleasure uh, meeting up with you guys again. And I'd love to do it again in the future. And I hope that our malware knots that have been watching the, the live stream here and our podcast listeners that will get the version that David will release find this useful. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak to Chris Boyd, lead malware intelligence analyst at Malwarebytes, about the often overlooked but heavy reliance that charity organizations have on tracking our personal data online. <laughs>